0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I have to tell you that I'm finding it hard to believe that so many people made donations to the salon in the past 10 days. As we all know, uh, we're in for some difficult times ahead and to think that people are still making donations to the Salon and uh, to all of the other great podcasts out there that have been coming online. You know, On many occasions, I've, uh, I've heard some names that I recognize as uh, being donors to other programs as well as to the Psychedelic Salon. And so I want to thank all of you uh, donors out there in podcast land for supporting our community at large. And today I would uh, specifically like to thank Dr. Laura, Slobodin Z, Douglas S., Trannan G., Michael M., and Graham W., and I would uh, be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that uh, several of these donors have uh, been helping out for several years now, and even though I haven't uh, met most of you in person, I do look forward to that day. We're all in this together, you know, uh, so thank you very much, Laura, Slobodin, Douglas, Trannan, Michael, and Graham. I most definitely appreciate your help. And uh, some other people I'd like to thank uh, are all of our fellow saloners who have been actively posting on the many forums over at thegirlreport.com. And uh, to all of you lurkers, too. Uh, We know you're out there and uh, we're happy for that. But uh, on the psychedelic salon forum uh, at thegirlreport.com, Big Dirty Foot, yeah, you heard me right. Uh, (laughs) We have a fellow saloner who goes by the handle Big Dirty Foot. Sounds like uh, someone who's been to Burning Man to me. Anyway, uh, Big Dirty Foot was kind enough to uh, start a thread asking for people to post their favorite episodes. It was that thread that inspired me to feature Sasha Shulgin today. Although I haven't actually counted the votes, uh, my sense is that Sasha seems to have uh, nudged out Terrence McKenna as the number one favorite which finally prompted me to uh, dig out a recording that was sent to me uh, quite a long time ago by uh, fellow Saloner Cohen from Belgium. And I apologize for uh, possibly mispronouncing your name and uh, for the fact that it's taken me so long to get this recording podcast. And uh, here's part of what Cohen said when he uh, sent me the MP3 file. Hello, Lorenzo. As I promised you some days ago, I have taken an audio rip of the VHS tape of the Shulgin Talk at the Psychoactivity Conference. It was recorded on 4 October 1998 in the morning. The host of the program was Jonathan Ott. Well, thanks for sending that, cone. and uh, coincidentally... uh My wife and uh, several of my close friends were actually at that conference, and uh, for years I've been hearing their stories about it. Now uh, we all get to hear one of the presentations from that uh, legendary conference ourselves. And by the way, uh, the people who produced this conference uh, are still going strong, and I'll uh, tell you about their next event after we hear Sasha's talk. But right now, uh, let's time travel back to one of my favorite cities, lovely Amsterdam, the year is 1998, and uh, we're attending a conference that also featured Christian Roche, Giorgio Samarini, Paul Stamets, and Dr. Albert Hoffman, among many other psychedelic luminaries. And so, uh, let's join them all as we uh, listen to Jonathan Ott as he introduces our beloved Sasha Shulgin.
1: It's my... Honor and privilege to be able to present a man who really doesn't need any introduction, but that's an old cliche, and I'll give him a little one anyway. Uh, Sasha or Alexander Shulgin, one of our esteemed and revered elders in this field, and a real pioneer in the structure-activity relationship studies of the of the alkaloids themselves, of the the phenethylamines first and the tryptamines secondly and this morning he's going to talk about the process of discovery and how it goes about that these things can be dreamed up or invented in the laboratory and become reality as many of you may have seen or experienced directly last night and uh, <laughs> of course everybody knows that you uh, Ian Children and Sasha Children wrote P-Call, uh something like six years ago, five years ago, six I think, and now Call, the long-awaited sequel, has come out, and these have really revolutionized the, the availability and accessibility of substances in the last couple of years, and they're having a really great impact, these books, uh, far beyond what uh, we've only seen the tip of the iceberg, really. And uh, for me, it was really important because it was knowing that Call was going to come out. I just, they published an excerpt in a magazine called The Whole Earth Review, and I hadn't seen the book, but just knowing that it was about to come out caused me to go back to publishing in this field, whereas I'd been doing it for some time, and I stopped because I was worried about attracting attention, legal problems, I was also dealing with my own career. And so... Uh, it actually inspired me to start taking more of a political stand and speaking out and defending our political rights in this area. And uh, I think that people focus a lot on the chemical and scientific importance of PCOL and TECOL, but their political importance is just as great and, and uh, is really a valuable contribution. So on the process of discovery, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Alexander Shulkin.
2: How do I say? Ahoy, ahoy. Yeah, it works. It's always a little strange to be introduced as one of the elders. I guess I am. I'm kind of getting on in years. But internally, no one's an elder. Internally, everyone's kind of around 35 or so. And you remain being kind of 35, and so this doesn't work much anymore, and that doesn't work much anymore. And then you have to kind of slow down, and then you get this replaced, and then you get that modified. <laughs> Uh, and and the, someone said, the body sort of goes on its own way, but the pleasure is that the internal head stays around 35, and that, that believe me, is a great blessing. <laughs> um, I am going to try to give a talk in a different way today. I usually get involved, well, I think the best way of describing it, see, this allows me to prance. I, you can still hear me over here. Ah, good, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, that's problems for you, though, you have to keep... Okay. Uh, yeah, the uh, equation that is called research, uh, investigation, discovering new things, experimentation, uh, I would make up a slide, except I had some slide problems because I was t- using something for the transparencies last night that was slightly opaque, and I drew the transparencies out. I tried them out this morning. They were totally opaque, so I had nothing but black on the screen. So I found, was given very nicely something that was transparent, but I haven't tried them out yet, so this is still a, a mystery to be observed, which is, of course, what life is. Anyway, the, uh, what I want to talk about is not what one finds out in the research area, but how one gets to finding things out in the research area. It's an unusual talk. I draw drawn up as an equation that A arrow B. A gives B. It's a very nice equation. It describes the research process, the investigatory process. You ask a question, that's the A. You scrape, scrape around in the, in the lab or in the bottom of the barrel or in the library or something. That's, that's the arrow. And you come up with the answer, B. And so everyone says, gee, you, you, have, you have just solved a very interesting scientific problem. Uh, discovery. Uh, but uh, the asking of the question is part of this process and is very often given short shrift. Because the, uh, the answer is where you, you get your reward. So sometimes your question is modified by what answer you want, what answer you want to get to, and then you go back and find out what is a good question to ask. But either way, uh, the process of getting there is often swept under the under the table, that arrow thing. For example, in in in, in um, academic research, everyone there used to be always. You, you go to the universities back in the beginning of the century, early time, last century, beginning of this century. You went to the academic world because it provided a certain amount of stability, academic stability, a, a job, you could interact with students, you could teach, you could do research work, you're given a little laboratory, some funds came in from the university and you could stir up something or react something or try hybridizing something as you wish. Your questions were of your own making. The funds came from the university and the answers were happily published in whatever journal were necessary to build up your bibliographic inventory sufficient that you could get tenure and then you could either stop working or uh, continue research at your own freedom. Unfortunately, in the academic world, this has changed more and more. More and more, the B has become the emphasis because uh, over the last, I'd say, perhaps 40 years, and recently almost totally disappeared, has been the academic sources of research funds. They say, "Oh, you want to do research? You want some graduate students? Nice. Get a grant. Go out somewhere and find a source of funds. Find some industry that will give you a contract to do this work. We're not going to give you the money for it. Get the funds. We'll handle your students. We'll handle the postdocs. We'll do your research expenses. We'll take 30 percent of it for the janitorial needs and the, keeping the garden green. But in general, the funds come from outside." So you get in a situation, Um, this uh, this I have found more and more in the university, that uh, the answer is dictated by the source of funds, and the source of funds is in turn what dictates the line of research. An example, I made this up, but it's the kind of thing you might encounter. You're curious, what is your question? What is the A of this A gives B? I have down here, does marijuana influence chromosome division? Now there's, there's a neat question. People are talking about marijuana is good, marijuana is bad, dangerous, not dangerous, uh, innocuous, it should be, it should not be this and that. Does it influence chromosome division? That is not, a fact, you may want to ask for reasons of your own. But what you end up asking is, do, do marijuana users have excessive chromosome breaks? you're still looking at marijuana, you're still looking at chromosome buckle smears, few generations, look at them under a microscope running 1.8% breakage and then you try to get people who've been smoking marijuana, maybe look at their smears and maybe you find something in 2.2, maybe 1.6 you find 2.2, well, it's as they would say it is not statistically significant but it's suggestive. I love the way you can euphemize these answers to maintain your grant renewal. Uh, So you get your grant, it is funded, and you end up, say, let's say, for for example, in your academic world, you end up not finding significant amount of chromosome breaks. So you say, if yes, of course, you will say marijuana uh, causes genetic damage. If no, you say, no, chromosome damage was seen from marijuana use or associated with marijuana use. But the paper gets published in whatever journal it is you publish it in with keywords such as marijuana, genetic damage, chromosomes uh, reproduc- reproduction risks all these are pejorative terms that apply back to the paper even though the paper was a clean bill of health so this is a form of very subtle psychologically influencing the granting agent in the US government the various governments love doing it as long as it applies it's in some way the answers can apply to what their current political needs are it's a sorry shift from the academic purity of research to the practicality of putting a dollar sign on that B of A gives B and then working back from that to where the A is industry is not much cleaner there used to be a term known as fundamental research sometimes it was called exploratory research go in the lab putsy around just have fun and see anything comes up that would be of value this is ideal I mean anyone would love this this is the academic world of of, of, uh, 75 years ago play around enjoy exploring Then more and more, uh, the term I have heard used quite a bit, I think they're called bean counters. People in industry who look at the bottom line and see if this line of research is really economically uh, valuable. Is there not another line that could be more efficiently followed? The people in the accounting office tend more and more to dictate the direction of research because they are the ones who will eventually have to pay out the check to the uh, uh laborers, to the people, to the employees, and that check must come from the funds that come from the selling of a product that comes out of that research. Uh, for example, uh, you might have a person in the, in the research department talking to the accountant who says, you know, DuPont has just come up with a 7-fluorosteroid steroid that is rather effective in uh, treating something or other that steroids would be effective in treating. Uh, the uh, answer is, well, let's get your research group working on six and eight floral counterparts. They're they're patentable, and out of those, we'll certainly find something that will be of, of, of value. So you have the dictation, again, of research by the bottom uh, n, the B and its dollar sign. And this, you'd think, would be totally absolved in the area of private research. And in principle, it is, and in practice, not quite. There are a number of institutions, number of groups in the area that we're interested here, in the area of psychoactive drugs. You have the Hefter Foundation, you have the MAPS group, both of which have been very active in, in collecting, instituting, funding, and seeing research projects get initiated that are for the, for the, the uh, discovering of information about of psychedelic drugs in general. But there's always this little smell of an agenda. Uh, not to take any of the of the glory from any of these groups, the agenda is still there. Namely, we want to achieve these ends. Uh, you wish to achieve a certain amount of academic acceptability, a certain amount of social balance. These are all noble ends, but they are ends. And those ends in some way must be thought of by the person who's applying for a grant. Because he wants to get the grant, the grant is money, the grant will come from them, and I'll apply for it in a way that will give me a favorable review by the review board. Not a much of an influence, but not totally without. So this, this area is, unfortunately, still smells a little bit of the of the A gives B, and the B is indeed the point from which the research starts. Anyway, with that, I want to get into a lecture uh, and how I got into the area and how what I want to talk about. But what I want to talk about is not the B, going this way, B. I want to talk about the arrow, but I'll tell how I got into it. I had a, worked... First in industry about 1950 something or other, 55, 56. I went to Dow Chemical Company. I was never a totally virgin in, in industry in, in that kind of chemistry. Here's a big laboratory, big equipment, big instruments, all the, anything you want to buy, you want to buy something, buy it, they'll buy it. And I thought, gee, this is marvelous, I can do whatever I want. Well, it not they don't quite let you do whatever you want. They say, here's what we're interested in working on. And I was introduced to uh, my lab partner. He's a man who'd been there a few years, Warren Kading. From which I learned a great deal. I learned this entire process of look at the arrow and not look at the bee. I learned it from him. He's a kind of a remarkable person. He is a person who I learned two things immediately. One, when he found something went strangely in a laboratory, he'd say, that's utterly bizarre. He did not know that b- bizarre was pronounced bizarre and he'd say bizarre. That's okay. Uh, but the second one, It's one, I guess it's a little bit sexist, but I learned it from him, and it had its applicability. When something would really go wrong, he'd slam something on the floor. In fact, he kept a little little line of broken beakers on the shelf. There's a wall at the end of the lab. And something went quite wrong, he'd pick up a beaker and throw it against the wall, smashing it. Well, the beaker's already been cracked, so it had no value. But just that throwing of the beaker, just marvelous. It it expunged him of of his anger. Uh, but as things went generally bad in a generic sense, he'd mumble, grumble, and say, "Chemistry is a woman." <laughs> and we had a delightful, delightful. Uh, we both had uh, technicians helping us, and they both were ladies. And somehow they got used to this from him. But it always struck me as a strange. Uh what he had, Now, I it was my first experiment on transparent transparencies. If this, I, like... no, yes, you're going to have to. Suffer, dirty pictures. I call these dirty pictures because it always offends someone who thinks they're going to come up with pornography. But a lot of chemistry is pornography in disguise. You just have to know where to where to look for the for the functional groups. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, they this is industry. They had toluene you know, pennies a pound, and they can make benzoic acid for pennies a pound, and Warren discovered that you put benzoic acid, that's the thing that's up there that I can point, well, I can point there, you can see it, one up in the middle of the top. You put it in with copper, copper salt, copper, this, copper, that, and throw fire to it, it went into phenol. Well, benzoic acid is pennies a pound, phenols, many pennies a pound, and you go to a million tons, this is sending big money. And so that, that was his discovery, you could oxidize an acid to a phenol. Marvelous. So when I got there, he had been explored the second line. They said, we need a lot of, of para, uh, t-butyl. T- that's a t-butyl group that's CCH33 at the bottom. Para-t-butyl phenol. Why not take ter- para-t-butyl pennies a pound, oxidize it to para-t-butyl benzoic acid, and then oxidize it to para-t-butyl phenol. We'll not have a quiz on this later. This is just general information. He did it, and it, he came out with the wrong thing he got meta that group was in the wrong place well the group didn't move, the phenol moved, but he worked that out later so suddenly he got something that he was not assigned to get it was the wrong thing the, the, the boss said wrong product, bad scene try again that, that's the, the mindset on the B and how you get there Warren said wrong product, good scene what went wrong? and that of course is the heart of the arrow, what went wrong? And he fiddled around with it, and he found, by golly, it goes through a salicylic acid, decarboxylates he here, and the phenols over here, and it goes metas from para or whatever. Anyway, got the wrong thing. That thing is a virtually unknown compound, and that's when I came into the industrial scene, and that was available, and said, "What you can do with it?" Well, this I took as almost being a freelance offer, and I looked at that thing. I said, "Gee, that's got the same carbon skeleton as And I drew down phytosterol down at the bottom here, and I guess I—I I don't know, do. I dare point out. Yeah. Yeah, here's a methyl, there's a methyl, there's a methyl, there's a carbon, just as there is in here, methyl, methyl, methyl carbon, and there is an oxygen. So I bet, since a phycysthymine is a real potent thing, and it's not that far from current insecticides, I'll wager you could take that t-butyl thing and put an amino group in the para-position and make it dimethylate it, and maybe something, maybe a 3,5-dimethyl, I bet you get an insecticide. So I had the wit, the skill, the luck to get six signatures. Attesting for that as being a good idea. So I had witnesses to the idea. I made the compound and it went commercial as an insecticide. And so, they, of course, the person who ran the insecticide lab, the person who ran that lab, they had my boss, everyone along the line tried to take all the credit for it, but I had six signatures and said I had thought it through and created it. I got the patent and the people at the industry said, gee, if you have that kind of imagination that you can look at a structure and guess another structure that might be active, why don't you just do whatever you want to do? And I did. And it was about five years later I left industry. (laughs) Uh, Because what I wanted to do is nice, but not exactly what they wanted done uh... i got into the psychedelic drugs and spades began making all kinds of neat things i sent them in for biological screening none of them were particularly active but they weren't looking for what i thought they had and what i then later knew they did have and so i was published for about two years out of dow and then they said we're not comfortable with your publishing with dow's address in this area I said, okay, I live on my own street up there. I'll publish from my home address. That's fine. So for about three years, I published from my home address and it was getting more and more uncomfortable. So I split the scene, left industry, went back to school and then became a consultant and got into things that I truly have enjoyed and that has been going ever since. So with this, I will now really start my lecture. Uh, am I under time constraint? I am. Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, I have drawn here four more dirty pictures. Phenethylamine, PEA and this shows the direction I really am now going with great interest. Uh, PEA can cyclize that little amino group, hang it down, bring it down, hang it down and stick in something and you come up with tetrahydroisoquinol. The carbons are all there plus one carbon. Where that carbon comes from becomes quite an interesting story. And so the PEA, and down here you have tryptamine and tryptamine can do the same thing. Tryptamine has an amine hangling out there, which can duck around this way and with a carbon become tetrahydro beta So there's a relationship between phenethylamines and tetrahydroisoquinolines, iso- between tryptamines and tetrahydro-beta-carbolines. I have worked this trilogy quite thoroughly, and out of it, still things are coming. But the fourth ent- entity is almost, is almost unknown up there. So I want to talk a little bit about... Substitu- phenethylamine is not an active compound. I mean, it's in this, it's in that. I've taken up to a gram and a half, nothing. Uh, perhaps if you took some other maybe things that would inhibit its oxidation or metabolism, it might be. But as it stands, no. You put stuff on that ring, and that's, of course, one of the main areas. Right, right up in here, uh, without getting too technical, you put a methoxy, monosubstitute, little odds and ends, up to about mono, and into the dye substitution, get stimulants. Uh, But they still decompose in the body quite rapidly. You get two or more than two, you get psychedelics. You get up to about four or four and a half, four or four and a half, I'd love to get half a group onto a ring. Four or five on there, they begin losing all the activities, becoming inactive. So I played around in that area a great deal, the trimethoxy in that position with three methoxys around here. It was mescaline 1, 2, 3 is a compound mescaline, which is my first introduction into the entire area, personal introduction in the area of psychedelics. And I began making all kinds of modifications, put a methoxy here, up there, change them around, put a methyl group here, hang something on there, put a bromine in, put a methyl group, play around. And it's simple on a blackboard, and people say, well, it's easy to do on the blackboard, to get the laboratory, it's more difficult. Sure, it's more difficult, perfectly doable, just be patient, sit around, find a way, you'll do it. And so this this worked out gorgeously. And in general, I found that the two oxygens out here, like methylene-doxy is uh, with, not with a two carbon chain, three carbon chain, is MDA. That MDMA came from this whole route which has that methylene-doxy group on there. You can put methylene-doxy in a methoxy, you get MMDA. These are things that come directly out of essential oils such as elamycin, meristosin, and such. And then getting, but more than that, mainly the focal point on this particular molecule is this four position. Where it is on that four position calls the type of action you get but with something in the four position you get activity so it's a really a beautiful thing you take a salt shaker put a little salt on there you get this kind of a compound put a little pepper on there you get something else just modify that four position with the tryptamine world it was not quite as clean cut initially then i began finding out uh, I took oxygen out here, that's, uh, you have serotonin, you have psilocybin or psilocybin with oxygen up here, you have bufotinine with oxygen unsubstituted out here. Okay, but the real power is the, what's on the nitrogen. So I, once I settle on a methoxy or an oxygen out that position, a dimethyl, diethyl, dipropyl, disopropyl, methylpropyl, methyl, isopropyl, on and on and on. The alkyl number alkyl groups are unlimited, and the number of putting them on is unlimited, and the, the, the novelty, the treasure, the, the unique Cascade of products that come out from it are absolutely joyful. A joyful to discover, to play with. I know whether you have good actions or not is another question. But anyway, this is where the tryptamine is, but it's only mono You make disubstituted tryptamine over there, activity goes. So again, the, the emphasis is some oxygen is, is good, or can help. But the activity is on these two groups. In the tetrahydro beta carbolines, these are not as versatile and not as well explored. The one I really got in originally was was harmaline itself, which is has a double bond up in here and a methyl group hanging down here and an oxygen over in here. But that these are that's another lecture to talk about structures. Uh, harmaline and harmine were the earliest ones I began exploring. Harmaline itself uh which is the uh the active or at least one of the major components of many of the plants you've been hearing about for the last two or three days. In my original experiments with, with uh, beta carb- with that beta carbolene, I got two or three hundred milligrams as what I thought was a pure chemical. And uh I got into very strange nauseous vomiting things. And it's a case of having nauseous and having diarrhea and thanking the Lord they're not quite simultaneous. <laughs> uh, it was it was a difficult experience. But I did try my best to visualize something and I got my eyes closed and I came back from the toilet and kept my eyes closed and I had to go again, came back and I got eyes, I got a face, I have got a, a mouth, I was visualizing a face that's going to be informative and I got around to the nose and those nose came on, in upside down and there's no way I can identify the person, I gave the whole thing, went and vomited again and gave up on beta carbolines as entities unto themselves, as Enzyme inhibitors, of course their action is legion, and this is an area of very, very extensive research right now that is going on, on finding the balance between monamine oxidase inhibition, which are things that prevent the metabolic disposition of compounds otherwise orally inactive, such as DMT, which has been talked about several times in the last two or three days, and making them orally active. Okay, and, oh, I was saying about Harmony, <coughs> which I thought was pure, it came on a, in a bottle from Merck. An old, old bottle, roughly 1920-something or other. And it was a great big 100-gram bottle of Harmelin that I used for all of my uh, uh, early work. I made it available to several other people for clinical studies. And then I got into a, an interesting uh, dialogue with someone in, in Sweden on the purity of these materials. And I looked at that material by mass spec, and it about 30% harmine. So this is from Merck. It says on the bottle, harmiline hydrochloride with the smells of, of medical authority, and yet it, it's converted, or it is 30% contaminated with harmine. I wrote to Merrick, and I asked what kind of criteria they used back in the twenties to establish identity materials. They answered a very nice letter saying that they have never offered this commercially, which is a nice answer, but not the answer to my question. And I got no satisfaction from there. I began playing around with it. The argument has brought, been brought out, for example, some of the work by Buhomstead on some of the old uh, fractions from harmine or Harmaline plants, the um, uh, Banisteriopsis group. Uh, suspecting that they may oxidize spontaneously from harmaline to harmine over time, storage, period of time. I can't tell whether my material is contaminated by its being 50, 75 years old or whether it is impure to start with. I cannot answer the question. I isolated both and purified both harmine and harmaline and I put them aside in the same way and they appear to be stable. Answers I don't know, but it was a fascinating problem. Some of the published literature uh, on the action of harmaline in clinical trials, I must say, is contaminated because the material, I won't go into who or what, uh, was twenty or thirty percent harming. I was at fault there. I gave the material to the researchers with the belief that the label was to be believed and I now will not make that mistake again. Okay, so this gets back to where I want to go. What I think I will do, I'll put up the next one and see if I can jockey it on stage and then ignore it for a while. You move to the right and the thing moves to the left. There we are. Well, more or less, that's good enough. Um, I want to get into, actually, the topic of my talk, because I'm about ready to start now. I've made three false starts, and I'll run out of time. This happened before I go through a lecture, and by the time I'm about ready to start the lecture, I'm out of time. So I have to... Oh, uh, I want to talk about psychoactive cacti, possibly, uh, possibly about psychoactive poppies, and the whole area of cactus and poppies immediately brings out often a prejudiced gut response, a sort of a, uh, a, a immediate reply. You hear, read psychoactive cactus? Oh, sure. Peyote, uh, of course, uh, trichoceros, that and the other, uh, contain mesclin. Uh What else is new? And they drop the whole topic right there poppies, psychoactive poppies, oh yes, peperacea, uh, what do you call it, opium, opium, there's where the active compounds is, what else is new, as if all of cactus could be explained by mescaline, forget the rest, there's nothing else, all the poppies could be explained by opium, forget it, there's nothing else, and there's, nothing can be further from the truth, these plant, the, the plant area, the cactacea, are absolutely Incredibly loaded, largely with those, I don't I have the examples up there, tetrahydroisoquinolins, dihydroisoquinolins, isoquinolins, quaternary salts of isoquinolins. The poppy world, and not just poppy, you get off into the, into the uh, other uh, the related genera, uh, but all basically in, I, I lumped them together as poppies, uh, are loaded, but they are loaded with different isoquinolins. And what I found in snooping around in the literature uh, that there is a, an ex- Extraordinary absence of overlap between the two groups, and here that caught my fancy. uh, uh, In in the theological sense, are there are there uh, two gods, a poppy god who made the poppies and a cactus god who made the cactus, and they don't talk, or is it one god had a little omission of of attention for a while and forgot that he put beautiful techniques in one plant, other techniques in the other plant, but never cross-contaminated the techniques. So what I did, and this is exactly where, this is the arrow. This is my arrow. I'm not, the B. People said, what do you want to talk about? What have you found out recently? That's B. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about the arrow. How I'm going to find the B without knowing where or what B is. So I have this thing up here. Aha. Uh, I, I drew four tetrahydroisoquinolins and four more over here. This is a clutch of eight, which I'm using as my my template to begin finding out where I am, what's going to happen. Here are the dimethoxy, 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 dimethoxy. The same over here, identical except methylene dioxies in each of the four positions. Uh here I have these two these two positions there and there, HH, H methyl, methyl H, methyl methyl. So these are all possible permutations of methylated dimethoxy with its positions being respected tetra-isoquinolins there and the exact counterparts over here with a methylene doxy so what I'm arguing here is what is the difference in the in the plant world in the pharmacological world between dimethoxy and methylene doxy with scattering of methyls um, in the phenethylamine the dimethoxy almost always exceeds the dimethoxy in potency or in activity or is active where the other is not 3,4-methylene uh, doxy amphetamine is MDA the corresponding dimethoxy, is 34 amphetamine is not active. Uh, in the case of the mescaline-like things, the, the poppy plant very nicely plops a methylendoxys in places of 2-methoxys, forming lefofurine, for example, out of what would be otherwise mescaline. And you have materials that should be active, but no one's gotten around to explore them yet. The, the unexplored alkaloids in, in the peyote plant alone is a, is a lifetime a search if you really want to get into some fascinating chemistry and totally unknown pharmacology. Is peyote uh, pharmacologically uh, similar to uh, mescaline, the mescaline to peyote? The studies have never been made. The people on which mescaline has been titrated clinically have never been given peyote as a control, and people out in the field who work with peyote have never given mescaline as a control. Just the comparison of a cactus and the major component of the cactus would be a fabulous clinical study as yet undone. It should be done. Okay, this, this top one, helenamine uh, is found in six different cactus species. Uh, it's never been found in a poppy. If you take away and begin hydrogenating, the ring on the right with the, the points without the double bonds, you can put one or two double bonds in there. You get dihydroisoquinolines or just isoquinolins. Uh, there are a number of these known, and you go up to about 12 different cactus species in which those are found. Not one of them is found in a poppy. It's so all cactus. The next one. The N-methyl, heliamine, is known in six uh, cactus species. By the way, it's a rather a potent monamine oxidase inhibitor. The cacti, and I'll bring this point in a little later, are loaded with monamine oxidase inhibitors, which it brings in the smell of what will be eventually kind of an ayahuasca direction. Uh it is known in a number of uh, of uh cactus, but never in a poppy. Interestingly enough, for those who are in the analytical game, this particular compound the methyl group there, in Certain forms of analysis, certain types of mass spec analysis comes up with this compound with a methyl group down here. Namely, that methyl group moves from there to there in the course of analysis. So you have to be a little careful. And Some of the literature statements of what are in these poppies may be followed by this this internal rearrangement that is chemically bizarre and has never been studied but has been mentioned by two people and I suspect is to be respected. Salsalidine is the same world Dimethoxy, but the methyl group down here. This is an interesting material. It's found, by the way, in six different cacti and has never been found in a uh, in a poppy. But these little groups in here, uh, if you take these groups off, you have a material that is a dihydroxy salcinol, which is a dihydroxy methyl H. This is a material that comes from dopamine. If you look at that dihydroxy in the amine group amine group it is dopamine and if you put acetaldehyde in down here you get that methyl group this material has been found in chronic alcoholics as a material that is present in various parts of the body Maybe uh, the alcohol oxidized acid aldehyde that's captured by dopamine. Dopamine, however, has also been used in the treatment of, of various things like Parkinsonism. And that people who are Parkinsonism positive and have this material, have this compound dihydroxy, it's called salsolinol or sal in the, in the medical slang. Uh, as a major component in their brain, different parts of the brain. If you find and put that in the brain of an animal, the animal becomes Parkinson-like in its behavior. So again, you have a very interesting, this would be an example of an alkaloid that's found in mammals and found in man, but is tied in with either alcohol, acetaldehyde, or dopamine, dopamine being natural, but dopamine also being given as a uh, uh, the hydroxydopa dopa or dopa itself as a treatment for Parkinsonism. So again, this is a, a tie-in together. I don't know what, how it's all going to fit. But this this material is found in the, in the in the mammalian world. The compound carnagene down at the bottom, or pectinine has a various number of names, uh, is again found in three different cacti. Never found in poppies. One thing the poppy can do, it can put stuff down here. It sometimes does and sometimes doesn't. There we go. It does. Instead of this methyl group, you put big benzyl groups. You put uh, uh, isofurinol groups or things down in that area. These are made in buckets by the poppy world. The cactus doesn't know how to put a big thing down there. The poppy doesn't know how to get there without putting a big thing down there. So just that one little spot, that, that, that one little group down there, the methyl is cactus, big stuff down there, like a benzo, is poppy, and no overlap. This to me is totally fascinating. This, this left-hand side is, a, in essence, a cactus world. Now, on the other side, methane doxies, you say, well, gee, obviously, these are all from plant sources, but interestingly enough, the uh, first of these, I call it MDHH4 because it's methylene dioxide and it has hydrogen, 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 and it's an arbitrary, uh, these are changed, these are unpronounceable, uh, is not, it's not found in any plant. It does not exist in any plant. The second one, the, uh, hydrohydrastinine, is found not in poppies, but is found as a product of the workup of poppies. It can be generated uh, synthetically from certain poppy alkaloids, but again, usually with something big hanging down in the lower one position that is dropped off. But it is on the edge of being natural, and it is on the edge of being in the poppy world. The last two over here, with a methyl H, uh, MH, and MM, are not known in any plant at all. The doxy is not a stranger to the, to the peyote plant, but the peyote plant or the other cacti put it in this position. It knows how to put a doxy group into a tetraisoquinoline, but it doesn't know how to get it in the 6-7 position. It only gets it in the 7-8 position. So the machinery is there in the, in the cactus. It's just misapplied in some way. If you apply it correctly, in my opinion, and get these kind of things, you have materials that don't occur in any plant source. So this is, this is exactly where I am. I don't know where it's going to go. I'm beginning to explore it. Uh, some isomers of carnagine, uh, of salsaladine, are pretty good monamine oxidase inhibitors. Uh, I, not not up to the harmine harmline area by a factor of perhaps 40. But they are there and I think structural variations of them might indeed bring them into, into some type, sort of understanding. What I want to do, I want to... I'm going to make finish synthesizing all these routes. These last two over here have only been in the literature two or three times uh, as chemical intermediates for something. Never been looked for, or never been found, anyway, in plants. These are totally strange. So I want to get these eight compounds, and I've already made arrangements to do the work, and combine, and not combine, but add to that collection of eight a sample of harmine and harmaline, and let the ten of those go, this is one of my major projects right now, into analysis for monoamine oxidase inhibition. Are any of those inhibitors? I know some already are. How do they compare with harmine and harmline, which are more of the standards in the psychedelic industry? How do they compare? And when you find this and this, maybe that might be very interesting. And then I want to take off the hydrogens, make them dihydros, make them aromatic, make them with n methyls, make them with different substituents. But take the most interesting and expand from those until you get a new collection of, of activity. Take the most interesting and expand from that until you get yet a newer collection of activity. Keep moving all the time from the most interesting leads to where it might go. Don't try to predict where it's going to go. Just learn from how it goes. I mentioned the um and how there's anhalamine, anhalanine, anhalonidine, uh paetine, these are all alkaloids from the cactus world, they're not just in peyote, there are many cacti probably the five or six with the uh, uh, pale prefix and with a lofo prefix which are named from the peyote plant are found in perhaps twenty or twenty-five cactus species, they're very widely distributed in nature but none of these uh, dimethoxyhydroxy or primethoxy tetrahydroisoquinolins has ever been reported in any other plant than a cactus as I mentioned the Ones of the methylene doxy down in that bottom position are in the cactus and in other other plants. You find them in a variety of other uh, 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 genera, in fact, in other families, but not not in the cactus. So, with that in mind, there's one other point. I, I should have brought... I do not even know when I start, started, so what time it is now it doesn't make any difference. Um, I have one last of this. That one last is always a nice thing when people are in the audience wondering when this is going to end. My last... <laughs> uh, slide, brings up one other point that compares poppies in some ways and cacti. Top is ah, dimethoxy phenethylamine with an NN dimethyl. This is very, very frequently encountered in uh, in in the cactus world. Uh, the free-amino NH2, dimethoxyphenethylamine, which is not an active compound, is in about 20, over 20 cactus species. The monomethyl, which is the one with just one methyl on the far end up there, is in well over 20 cactus species. The dimethyl is known in six. Uh, there are probably many, but at least six have been reported in the literature. Uh, seven, I found one in, in the Pacoceros, so there are seven in which I can find that. Uh, this compound, I think, should be psychoactive. It's got all the goodies and the smells of being psychoactive. Two methoxy groups, well, maybe it'd be better if it's methylenedoxy, but why not If The dimethyl up there, uh, it's in many cacti, but it's never been tried in man. That compound's totally unknown in man. And I wonder if with the monamine oxidase inhibitor, it might become orally active in man. But to me, even more, <coughs> more intriguing is the lower compound, which uses that methylenedoxy group. Here is something that is unknown in the plant world. It should be there, and it's not there. And I think, as I say, some divine uh, mischief is going on to leave it out. It's simply made. Very simply, I've, I've made it, you made two steps, you make the damn thing. Uh, but it's, not, it's in, not in the plant world, it's almost not in the literature, almost no mention of it in the literature. Simply made, and totally unexplored. So this is kind of where I want to go. Now, 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 where I want to go is the, is the B. This is how I'm going to get to wherever it is I end, end up getting to. The process is I want to look at these eight compounds on the previous slide and harmine, harmaline as monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Not that I particularly want it, but by looking for these, one gets into a very Oh, by the way, I, I, I didn't mention, but one of the compounds on the right—the one with the methyl down and the hydrogen out and methyldioxe—I already found is active between 15 and 100 milligrams. So there is activity to be found in these things. Uh, anyway, I want to eventually explore all of these it is always nice from, a, from an ethical and legal point of view looking at things that might or might not have monoamine oxidase inhibition. ambition in that if they are clinically active they might be or they might not be antidepressants and antidepressants in no way compromises any research work because it is only illegal to look for psychedelics, which I do not look for, I look for antidepressants and this takes care very nicely of some aspects of, of legal morality uh... so uh, I want to look at these, these, this kind of where I am, this is the, the, the shape of the arrow, A to B arrow right now. I want to look at these eight compounds and harmine, harmaline as monamine oxidase inhibitors as clues to where enzymatic and biological activity might lie. And I don't know where I'm going to find the most. They've never been compared with one another. About four of them have been run, three on one system, two on another system. They cannot results cannot be compared. I want all ten on the same System so the results are directly comparable to one another. They can be compared and evaluated. I want very much to um, uh, explore these materials pharmacologically and I will continue what, doing what I am already doing. I think a lot of these things can be dehydrogenated de- to the totally aromatic dehydro and methylcoatalated. I think, for example, an area of chemical modification, uh, oh, it's a ballad, I can show it on this, where you have two methoxy groups in a row, take one of them off. You have methoxyhydroxy, this area of vanillin, the isovanillin, the hydroxymethoxy metabolites of, of uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, all these goodies, uh, are lie in this general area. But one says, well, the hydroxy group has to be on the molecule so it will get into the brain. But if the hydroxy has to be off, you can't have a bare hydroxy. But the hydroxy is next to methoxy. It's not bare. It's, it's, it's compromised. And there are things that contain free hydroxy groups that do get in the brain if they are protected from getting through associated with water. An example silicin. Acetylacin has a bare hydroxy group, yet it's it's active as such orally, but it is associated with a very strong base. And so you have an internal salt, and that salt may be what protects it. The same thing is totally doable in the area of the tetrahydroisoquinolence. And one last point I want to pursue is a concept uh, that's brought out in discussions of of ayahuasca, in which you might have materials such as these that are should be active and would be active if they're not deaminated. And a cactus, these are, the upper ones at least from a cactus. And cactus components that themselves may not be active but may inhibit that deamination. So it's exactly the parallel to ayahuasca that is very possible in a cactus. You could have a phenethylamine that would not normally be active but it is active because in the same cactus there happens to be a tetrahydroisoquinoline that inhibits the inactivation of the phenethylamine. So, in essence, you have an internal ayahuasca. This is, this is a doable thing, a believable thing. And what is very provocative is that um, if you have that combination uh, in there, you have a mixture of compounds that may show activity, but neither one of the compounds alone would show any activity. So, it's, a, it's an example of search for what is in a cactus. Find out something in there. Is it active? And fail to find activity is not necessarily a discouragement because it may be only in combination that it's active. Therefore, the plant may be active, but the components of the plant are not. So this is kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring you a, a report of what's going on, not where it's going to go. I don't know where it's going to go, but how I'm going to explore getting to wherever it's going to go and uh, let that be kind of the, 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 the bottom line to the title of, of the talk. And I really do believe that this whole process of getting uh, to a, a, a target rather than achieving a target uh, is a lot more exciting. Thank you very much.
1: I think we have time for questions uh, a little bit, so and, and Dr. Schulgen would be happy to answer them.
2: Uh, I, I try to answer them. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now from the microphone, please. Sorry,
3: I'm too short. Um. My brief statement is that you've certainly given me a dimension to, um, to think about in uh, Island by Huxley, the fact that he named one of the characters Joe Aldehyde, because I was only familiar with it um, in the perfume industry. Uh, I had never thought of him uh, related to psychoactive chemicals. But my question is, uh, I know my field is more inorganic chemistry, my interest, but uh, with cannabis... In the U.S. generally, it's thought that the THC is the only active compound in cannabis. And I was wondering, have there been any studies to find there's, what, 200-something other alkaloids in cannabis? Um, and it's been proven that Marinol, the isolated, doesn't work as well. Has anybody done any research on all these other ones?
2: Okay. Uh, let me go back kind of in the middle of the question back toward the first. One thing you term alkaloids be cautious; there are not alkaloids in cannabis. It is an alkaloid list plant, at least from the point of view of its, of its activity. These materials are hydrocarbon, they're actually ethers, uh, and they're terpene-like, but they are not alkaloids. Is THC the only active compound? Absolutely not. There are other materials in there that are known to be active, but the clinical studies in man have not, to a large measure, been successfully done.
3: Yeah, that's at, my question. Is yeah,
2: the, Are in animals? Yes. Uh, And Hmm. there's no question but what they will contribute, in my mind, at one level or another, to the overall action of the plant. To study the action of THC in isolation is a very unnatural thing to do. THC of Marinol is actually uh, synthesized. It doesn't come from the plant, although there's work in Holland in obtaining it from the plant in a competitive way. Isn't
3: it even hexahydrocannabinol? It's a separate... It's hexahydrocannabinol, right? It's a
2: separate... The the tetrahydro has one double bond. The hexahydro has been studied in animals. I don't remember the results of the study. I don't believe it's found in the plant. But there are many variations of the double bond position and variations of the ring integrity that are common components of the plant. Many have been studied in animal studies. I do not know of clinical studies in men. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Will you keep working on cactus oh, and poppies and all.
2: <laughs> Is there a microphone? Good. Good. I thank you very, very much.
3: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Have you ever been in a foreign land where you only spoke a few words of the native tongue? Well, that's kind of uh, how I felt just now when I was listening with you to that last exchange between Sasha and uh, an obviously well-versed woman questioner. I could make out some of the words like uh, cannabis, cannabinoids, THC, and things like that. But for the most part, their conversation sounded more like a like an Italian opera or something to me. Uh, the lovely sound of human voices singing in a language that I do not know. In fact, uh, I have no idea now how I even managed to uh, pass chemistry class in college. But I digress. I guess what I'm trying to uh, get to is that uh, even though I don't grok all that Sasha says... I think it's important to uh, preserve these talks as best we can for any future chemist who may find some inspiration from his words, and uh, more particularly by uh, hearing a little bit more about the processes involved in uh, doing the very sophisticated work that he does. Sasha also came up recently uh, in an email from fellow saloner James M., who writes in part, Hi, Lorenzo. I've been enjoying the podcast as always. And I like that as Facebook friends, I get to know when you are working on them. I have two questions. First, has there been a word on how Sasha Shulgin is doing? Well, uh, James, as far as uh, I know, uh, the only problem, uh, main problem, is his loss of sight, uh, which, of course, is a major problem. Uh, he does have Anne and a crew of other friends and family to help out, but... Uh, If someone has the tech chops to set it up, I I think that we could all go a long way to keeping a smile on his face by maybe collecting a bunch of Skype messages to him and uh, put them on a CD and send it to him. And uh, I'll let you talk about that on our Grow Report forum if somebody thinks they could pull that off. And speaking of our forum, there is an amazing discussion going on right now about a group of fellow Saloners coming together and adding to the good start on transcripts that Allison has begun and uh, going on to uh, publish a book of Terence McKenna transcripts. Now, I don't know where this is all going to uh, end, but uh, it began with a simple question by M.N. Borden that uh, grew into a very active thread. By the way, uh, in addition to our forum over there, uh, there are dozens of other forums, uh, all of which I think you'll find very interesting. It's a truly wonderful community that is uh, forming over there, and I'm very pleased to be a part of it. Now, getting back to uh, James's email, there was a second question that he asked. Can you think of any one book which would serve as a good historical cultural introduction to the psychedelic scene's beginnings in the 50s and 60s. I asked because I recently introduced a friend to the sacred medicine and talked to her during our session about the impact of LSD on our culture. She had never heard of Timothy Leary and had no idea that there were ever legitimate studies done with psychedelics. She asked me for a book, as it was a whole new world to her, but I couldn't think of anything in particular. So how about it? Well, not not to keep coming back to the same point, but uh, on our forum, uh, over at I started a thread a couple of weeks ago uh, asking, once again, what people's favorite books are. And uh, there have been some very interesting comments posted, but I've never thought before about one single book that would be a good introduction to the early psychedelic scene. Again, uh, that's a great idea for another thread, but I'll add my own two cents here anyway. Of course, uh, I'm going to have to do it by uh, mentioning more than one book. But that way you can uh, check them out on Amazon and pick the one you think might be the best fit for your girlfriend. In other words, uh, this is probably a case where you aren't going to be able to find a one-size-fits-all book. So uh, here are two of my favorites, although they don't exactly fit the early 60s genre that you mentioned. First one is Sisters of the Extreme, Women Writing on the Drug Experience by Cynthia Palmer and Michael Horowitz. And the second one is The Long Trip, a prehistory of psychedelia by Paul Devereaux. And uh, together, I believe those two books should uh, make it clear that the psychedelic resurgence of the 60s was simply the start of what Opaque Lens calls the re-shamification of the human consciousness. Maybe it was uh, Fraser Clark who said that on Opaque Lens's uh, shamanic freedom radio podcast that was a tribute to Fraser. Anyway, uh, if after reading those two books, someone still isn't interested in our sacred medicines, then uh, maybe they should move on to other topics that are of more interest to them. As we all know so well, uh, being a professional psychonaut isn't uh, for the faint of heart. But if you do want to rub shoulders with uh, some of your fellow entheogenic explorers and adventurers, a good place to start might be at uh, one of the conferences that take place from time to time, as I've said many times before. You know, a few minutes ago we heard a talk that was given at the Psychoactivity Conference that was held in Amsterdam in 1998. And the uh, people who produced that conference are the same ones, I think, uh, who are producing Psychoactivity 6 in Tibet later this year. And you can find the full details on their uh, website at psychoactivity.eu, where uh, they say this about their next conference The tiger meets the jaguar. Shamans from Nepal meet shamans from South America intercultural meeting of the shamanic traditions between the himalaya and the amazon and uh, if any of our fellow Saloners are able to attend this conference i i hope you'll send me an account of it to uh, pass along here in the salon now i've got a couple more things to say and as much as i hate being negative the first of them uh, is negative it's about my relationship with sandisk mp3 players now, long-time saloners uh, may remember a few years back when I dropped my sand disc on a tile floor and broke the on-off switch, making it totally useless. So, uh, for the past several years, I've been using a little iRiver MP3 player that the Dope Fiend sent me to uh, replace my broken one. And I love that little player, by the way. Now, about a year ago, uh, my wife bought the tiny version of the sand disc, and it worked great uh, until she dropped it, all of uh, maybe six inches, and it broke the same way. This on-off switch no longer works. Now, maybe this was just bad luck on my part, but uh, you can bet that I'm not going to be buying any more SanDisk products, which is really too bad, uh, except for their crummy switches. I I really like their players. Again, uh, a good topic for our forum might be, uh, what kind of MP3 player are you using? Do you like it? What are your favorite features? You know, things like that I think a lot of us would find interesting. Finally, uh, I want to say a few more words about my newfound fascination with Facebook and Twitter. Like many of our fellow saloners, uh, I've been constantly searching for better and more efficient ways to find the others. And while it's still too early for me to come to a firm conclusion about these uh, new social networking sites, I, uh, I am discovering all kinds of fascinating things that can be done with uh, Facebook and possibly even more importantly uh, with Twitter. I have no idea, of course, where all this is leading, but uh, here is just one tiny example of how these sites, uh, along with podcasting, can bring people together who otherwise never would have crossed paths. Many years ago, uh, I first heard about the work of Albert Bates, but I never would have uh, been so bold as to try to contact him. However, uh, my friend KMO has no such qualms and drove down to the farm and interviewed Albert for uh, several of the Sea Realm podcasts. So when I finally got on Facebook and uh, saw that Albert Bates was there, well, I, I clicked the Add a Friend link, and uh, much to my delight and surprise, he agreed to link up with me on that site. So the other day, uh, as I was scanning my friend's status updates, I read that Albert Bates was listening to Sancho and Cody's Black Light in the Attic podcast at the exact same time as I was listening to the same program. Now, that's uh, not much of a big deal, you might say, and in truth, I, I guess it isn't such a big deal. But somehow, uh, for me to learn that someone I respect is listening to a podcast that I recommended, well, it just made this world a lot smaller and friendlier for me. So if you haven't taken the plunge to experiment with these sites yet, my advice is uh, to ignore everything that's being written about uh, Facebook and Twitter and check them out for yourself. For example, uh, it's possible to watch the Twitter cloud in real time and uh, see what the main things are that are being discussed by a million and a half people. And uh, depending on who you decide to follow in Twitter, uh, you'll most likely be surprised at the level of discussion that's taking place in those short uh, 140-character bursts. And uh, searching the Twitter space can lead to uh, all kinds of interesting connections. For example, uh, just now I searched for the word psychedelic salon, and uh, discovered that so far this month, uh, two people besides me have uh, mentioned the salon. So uh, thank you, Ben Zier, JP, and Mark G85. I appreciate you uh, keeping us alive in Twitter space, and uh, I'm happy to be following you guys now, too. And if you uh, happen to connect with me on Facebook, uh, you can go to my friends list and uh, sort by region, where you'll see that uh, I have more friends in Australia than I do in London, or that I only have one friend in France, but two in Croatia. Uh, who knows? Maybe one day you'll be able to find the others in your own hometown this way. So if you want to, uh, join us in this little experiment, you can, uh, find me on Twitter as Psychedelic Lozo, P-S-Y-C-H-E-D-E-L-I-C-L-O-Z-O, and on Facebook as Lorenzo Haggerty. And, uh, Haggerty, by the way, only has one G. I've uh, heard from several friends that they couldn't find me there at first, and as it turns out, if you search for the 2G Hagerty's, uh, you aren't going to see us one jeers. But if you can find me, uh, I'd be more than happy to connect with you. And that way, at least, uh, I will have uh, found another one of the others. Well, now that I seem to be rambling, I guess it's uh, time to bring this podcast to a close. And as always, uh, I'll end by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the uh, Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's uh, also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.